Welcome to Season 8 of American Political History, Colonial America, Agrarian Society. For 250 years after the first English settlement at Jamestown, life in America was profoundly influenced by the nearness of the people to the soil. A New York or Philadelphian merchant would eat vegetables grown in his own vegetable garden, or if he was rich enough on his nearby farm. In Charleston, the wealthiest merchants enjoyed the produce from their own plantations, living there during the heat of the summer along the rivers cooled by the river breezes. The highly organized and specialized division of labor which we are accustomed to in the 21st century did not exist before the Industrial Revolution. America, for most of its history, was predominantly a nation of farmers and a society based around agrarian labor, customs, and politics. An agrarian society requires the interdependency of everyone around you, shared common spaces for animals to graze, sharing of crops when harvests were bountiful before they spoiled, and community organized charity to support those whose crops faced famine. And this interdependency was as common in the cities as it was in the communities on the frontier. Farming your own land, more specifically, owning your own land, is a much more powerful symbol that drove the ambitions of colonial Americans. Being amongst the landed gentry had always been a symbol of aristocracy in English culture. When the rich merchants of London wanted to improve their social status, they always sought to buy a freehold in the country or marry their sons and daughters to the established landed gentry. Colonial America was filled with the ambitions of the second sons of English gentry, the castaways of European culture, and the entrepreneurs seeking fortunes, all of which were coming to America for the opportunity to own their own land for the opportunity to become landed gentry that had been so long closed off by English culture. For all the valuable land in England was already owned by some family. These American men would spend lifetimes trying to obtain enough wealth so they could disperse it amongst their children in estates large enough to maintain all of their children's status and lifestyles as the new landed gentry of America. A new socialite planter class emerged in Virginia, Maryland, and South Carolina. And in these regions of colonial America, they wished to imitate the style of the country families of England. American social groups started to form. Informal customs turned into formal practices. A season of entertainment and matchmaking emerged for the social elite. This period of colonial America is often romanticized today as a time of leisure. In actuality, that couldn't be further from the truth. The drive of the men of the 18th century was highly ambitious, filled with tireless working hours to develop their plantations and their estates. They needed to obtain enough wealth to split their fortunes amongst their children. And in the 18th century, family size was large. They could be splitting their estates five or six times over. So these men knew from the beginning that they would need to grow their estates wealth by five or six times over during their lifetimes, in order to just maintain their family's status and position within society. The early 18th century was a time of the founding of the great American families, 
In Virginia, this was the Byrds, Carters, Fitzhughs, Beverleys, and Lees. And the founders of these families, unlike the aristocracy in England, found no mercantile business beneath their status. William Byrd laid the foundations and his prosperity by trading pots and pans, guns and rums with interior native. He was also a prosperous slave trader in both native and African slaves. Charles Carter and Nathan Harrison Wakefield made their fortunes selling mundane hardtack, biscuits, which supplied food for the long voyage of merchant ships traveling the triangle trade routes between Europe, Africa, and America. We have the diary of William Byrd II, who was the son of a successful Virginia planter. He completed his finishing school in England. He then took a mentorship in Holland to learn the Dutch business practices and briefly apprenticed with the Perry and Lane merchants of London before returning to Virginia. Upon returning to his family's estate in Virginia, he was consumed by the many details of operating the family plantation. He personally oversaw the day's work in the orchard fields and vegetable gardens. Beyond the work on the plantation, he would attempt many other business ventures, including operating a sawmill and a gristmill. He would also prospect for minerals, looking for iron and copper, as well as joining in land prospecting, attempting to buy tracts of land ahead of the settlers on the frontier and then selling them in a few years, turning a profit. William Byrd II also speculated in the tobacco markets, buying up local farmers' tobacco crops and hoping market prices would change in a way that his speculation could sell for a profit. But the bird's wealth always had one staple profit commodity, buying and selling of slaves. And if all of that was not enough, he regularly awoke at three in the morning so that he could spend a few hours before breakfast reading the Bible verses and sermons in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin all of which he was fluent in specifically to be able to read the Bible with as little translation as possible. Byrd's favorite author of sermons was the Archbishop John Tillerson. In his life, William Byrd II would collect over 3,600 books and treatises on all sorts of different subjects from religion to science to philosophy. Colonial Americans' culture had changed significantly in the first generation of the 18th century. This was the second generation of the American aristocracy. They spent their formative years in England, had ties to the home country, and could now regularly send correspondence to their friends and family in Europe. The distance between America and England had become smaller. Instead of America being beyond a vast ocean, America was just now across the pond from each other. But colonial Virginia was not just the birds. Robert Carter became known as King Carter, both to insult his pridefulness and to acknowledge the magnitude of his landholdings. Robert Carter closely monitored every line item of expense on his plantations. With the book smarts of an accountant, he worked long hours for a lifetime and passed away in possession of 300,000 acres of land. Like the others of the burgeoning aristocracy, King Carter had a large library of classic works on law and religion. His preferred source of sermons was reading Dr. John Scott. On his deathbed, his most pressing concern was that of the education of his sons, both intellectually and spiritually. He left detailed instructions which spared no expense for his son's education. They were to complete their finishing school in England 
and be brought up spiritually by the Church of England where they would be required to learn Latin. But we must remember that being part of this new aristocracy was not the norm. Only 1 in 15 Virginian planters owned more than 1,000 acres. Most farmers were family farmers, with no outside labor or indentured servants. These were small farms supported by just the members of their family. For the first half of the 18th century, these family planters had hopes to sustain their fortunes and keep their lands. But as the 18th century slowly turned to be dominated by the large slave plantations, these small farmers were forced off their lands by competition with slave plantations. This is the same cycle that forced many of their ancestors off their small farms in the West Indies, after slave plantations took hold and pushed them out. As time went on and we get to the middle of the 18th century, these small farmers would face a season of drought, or a collapse in tobacco prices, or any other misfortune, and they would become unable to pay their rent, what we call property taxes today, and they would be forced to sell their land back to the government, who typically auctioned it to the wealthiest plantations. As the great colonial families rose in power and political influence, they would be indirectly forcing all of the small farmers off their lands. And since the large plantations in the 18th century had become more and more dominated by African slave labor, there were no opportunities for these small farmers to even work on the large plantations. Their only choice was to seek opportunities out on the American colonial frontier. By the revolution, there was no part of developed colonial America that was not entirely dominated by large slave-based plantations. But the economic domination of these large plantations did not guarantee the success of the large plantations, because even the powerful and elite within colonial America were still part of a web of mercantile England's economic policies. American plantations were reliant on English merchants to transport and sell their commodities back in London. This government-sanctioned trade monopoly forced American planters to sell goods at the stated price of English merchants. Any mismanagement or misfortune would cause a large plantation to start floating debt against their creditors, which could cause the very same cycle that removed the small farmers from their lands. The prevailing characteristic of large plantation owners in the 18th century was being short on cash, something all farmers can relate to even in the present day. Plantations found that they could not compete without purchases of slaves, yet slaves were high-value, capital-intense investments, meaning before they had even planted a crop, the large plantation owners owed great sums of money to their creditors. And we have to remember that this was a time without bankruptcy. If you owed great sums of money that could not be paid off, you could be shipped to debtor's prison. And for the unfortunate in debtor's prison, that meant you could be shipped to settle some newfound English colony somewhere else in the world. Even King Carter, as rich in land endowed as he was, would constantly be looking for other ways to find profits. First, he would attempt to grow other profitable crops than tobacco, like hemp flax or cotton, or selling flowers for display in people's houses. After all of those failed, he turned to milling, then baking bread, making textiles, operating a salt mine, and even invested in an ironworks in Baltimore. A plantation owner could not rely on the success of every season's crop, forced out of necessity to diversify their business ventures. And any massive failure of any of the business ventures could topple the whole plantation and estate, 
There were no LLCs. All debt was attached to the person, and debt was inheritable. Business for colonial Americans was quite literally a generational endeavor. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.